on Tuesday, Putin commented about this and made quite an anti-Semitic remark about him. So some of the ones trying to get off the sanctions list and would be willing to commit funds to Ukraine, that ship has already sailed. They don't like Putin. They're never going back. They have Mm. been in his crosshairs for a while. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, September 15th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe to discuss her new interview with Secretary of State Antony Blinken and how the United States has found a novel way to use seized money from Russian oligarchs to help support the Ukrainian war effort. And later, Lauren Sherman swings by to dish on the biggest winners and losers of New York Fashion Week. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe, who... According to the headline on Puck, quote, just spoke to Blinken. You talked to Secretary of State Antony Blinken. You write, he called you from the train on his way out of Kiev, where he had made an unannounced visit to declare a new U.S. aid package. We'll get into that. Uh, but first, you mentioned in here, Blinken was 15 minutes outside the city where his grandfather, Maurice, had been born. I didn't know that the U.S. Secretary of State's grandfather was Ukrainian. So is he biased? Is he biased in this conflict? <laughs> we, we got a little bit of back and forth on this. Like, it's not that he's Ukrainian. His grandfather was a Jew from Kiev. And back then, mm. he would not be considered Ukrainian. I think it's only very recently that the word Ukrainian refers to a kind of uh, country of origin as opposed to an ethnicity. Um, Mm. And I think back in the day when Maurice was uh, Maurice Blinken was born in Kiev, I don't think anybody would have considered him Ukrainian, but he was a Ukrainian Jew. That is a good history lesson for me. Uh, My younger uh, self who came close to winning a geography B would be embarrassed that I just mentioned that in WIFT. Um, Julia, though, what did he say about this new aid deal to Ukraine? So. What struck me about this aid uh, package, you know, it's one of a gazillion like it. 
that we've seen rolled out over the last year and a half. But what was what really stood out to me about this one was that it included a little sliver, about five and a half million dollars of money that had been seized from an, an oligarch. Uh, and I asked Secretary Blinken who it was. He, of course, would not tell me. But this is interesting because there are over $300 billion in uh, seized Russian assets, I believe, around the world, uh, including yachts and mansions and bank accounts. Uh, most of them are in Europe, of course, and they're just sitting there. And in some cases, uh, Western countries are spending millions and millions of dollars on upkeep, like the yachts, for example. They they don't just sit in a harbor. You have to maintain them in good condition. Otherwise, it opens up uh, legal Pandora's box, damages, et cetera. But so far, the U.S. and other Western countries have not been able to figure out a way to use those funds for Ukraine, which Ukraine has been advocating for. And I think some in the Russian opposition have been advocating for. But it seems that finally the American Department of Justice figured out, according to Secretary Blinken, a way around this and a way to use this money. Uh, he wouldn't explain how, but he said that basically it involved sanctions violations. And what was interesting to me about this is that, you know, when I asked him, is this basically setting a new precedent? Are we going to be seeing more of this? And he mm -hmm. said, absolutely. So that's going to be interesting. And I'll be curious to see how Moscow reacts. So I can probably predict how. Julie, what else did, did Blinken say about some of these oligarchs that were sanctioned? So I asked him about essentially what is has been talked about privately among former uh, American policymakers and Russian oligarchs, you know, what would happen if basically, is there a possibility for an off-ramp mm -hmm. off these sanctions list for Russian oligarchs who are sanctioned, but say, if you let me off the sanctions list, I will commit X amount or X proportion of my seized assets to Ukraine, to its defense forces, to its reconstruction needs, whatever. Huh. Could a Russian oligarch get off the sanctions list that way? Because that has definitely been discussed in the US, in Europe. There are Russian oligarchs who are lobbying behind the scenes to get off the lists, uh, including three who were just taken off a European sanctions list on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting is that uh, Secretary Blinken said, nope, basically, like, we mm -hmm. didn't put you on the list to get money from you. Mm -hmm. We put you on the list because you did a certain set of things. And if the fact if the facts change, then we can talk about it. But you can't basically buy your way off the list. And, you know, when we were talking about the previous thing about taking some of these assets and using them for Ukraine, um, this five and a half million dollars that was seized and was part of this um, most recent aid package is going to help Ukrainian veterans, for example. And what Secretary Blinken said is the people who facilitated this war should pay for it. But he did not agree that they should be able to pay for it by committing a sum in order to get off the sanctions list. Presumably, though, wouldn't if if these 
Russian oligarchs are lobbying behind the scenes to get off the sanctions list by pledging money to help Ukraine, that would put them in Putin's crosshairs, right? Well, some of them don't care. Some of them are already in Putin's crosshairs. They are in Europe, in Israel. Uh They're done with Russia. They're never going back. They're against the war. Uh, I'm thinking of one specifically, Arkady Volosh, who started Yandex, which is basically uh, the Russian homegrown Google. And, you know, he was sanctioned by the European Union. He doesn't understand really why. I mean, he Hmm. was not like a Putin oligarch. He was one of the few people who actually built something in Russia. Hmm. But he was sanctioned because he allowed their search function to basically censor results about Mm. the war, about Ukraine, et cetera. And he's now in Israel. He's never going back to Russia. And he recently came out and said, I'm against this war. It's brutal. It is heartbreaking. I hate it. I'm against it. I'm against everything Putin is doing. And actually on on Tuesday, Putin commented about this and made quite an anti-Semitic remark about him. So some of the ones trying to get off the sanctions list and would be willing to commit funds to Ukraine, you know, that ship has already sailed. They they don't like Putin. They're never going back. They have mm. been in his crosshairs for a while. This is a topic far, far away from Russia and Ukraine. But you asked Blinken about this uh, rhetoric in Republican politics right now, uh, you know, in the House of Representatives, in the Republican presidential primary, that the border is out of control. Fentanyl is coming over. Look, I mean, I think this is the, the topic of, of the border and people coming over is a fair topic. It is something that has been a thorn in the side of the Biden administration. <laughs> but Republicans are saying we should. And the Trump si- administration and the Obama administration. Absolutely. Because our system, our immigration system is broken. Absolutely. And Republicans refuse to fix it. But, okay, <laughs> sorry, go on. Um, <laughs> Republicans are saying we should send troops into Mexico. And you asked the Secretary of State about this. I'm curious what his response was. I mean, right. He's not just focused on Ukraine. He has to deal with the whole rest of the world. And I was like, are you hearing anything about this from our Latin American partners? And he was just like, well, what? (laughs) But, you know, he's super polished. He doesn't really go off script. And I think the most he was going to give me, the most fired up he was going to give me. um, I mean, he did sound pretty pissed about it. And he clearly thought it was absurd and ridiculous, but he was like, look, this is, quote, deeply misguided. And he was like, Mexico is a partner, a massive economic partner, political partner, geopolitical partner. And these are complex problems that need complex multilateral solutions, not just, you know, something that seems satisfying, like sending in a bunch of soldiers into Mexico. Yeah. I mean, that's that might be uh, Blinken might be scripted uh, and uh, cautious, but that is a completely logical answer, in my opinion. Yeah. 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 I was just hoping for, you know, some answers we could bleep. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Julia, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Please get more uh, officials on the phone. I want more headlines. Julia just spoke to XY (laughs) and Z. Have a good weekend. You too, Peter. Bye bye. When we come back, Lauren Sherman rates the winners and losers of New York Fashion Week. Welcome 
Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Lauren Sherman in New York. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, Ben. I'm so happy to be here. Lauren, you've been here for Fashion Week in New York, obviously also our Puck second anniversary party, which was fantastic, by the way. So fun. But I wanted to ask you about your favorite shows, the brands that really stood out this year, the gossip, what's trending, etc. Was there any kind of theme this year or big takeaway for you? I would say it was really about the haves and have nots and the people with the money and the people without money. New York Fashion Week is inherently very commercial and it was more commercial than ever. Everybody was talking about, especially at the beginning of the week, the tapestry Capri deal. And actually, there was just a filing released today giving a bit more background on how much Capri wanted to be sold for and how much tapestry actually paid. And news of a Jenny Chu potential IPO that never happened. So there's some juicy stuff to come. But people were really talking about what are they going to do with these brands? And the the whole thing opened with Coach, which is sort of the marquee brand in both of these companies in terms of size. And then Michael Kors also showed. And I'd say in the Capri portfolio, he's sort of the rival to Coach. So it's interesting to see how those two brands executed their shows. I thought that Kors did an incredible job with the design and the venue, it was on the edge of Williamsburg and you could see the city and it was just absolutely gorgeous. And And the collection was really great too. Coach, you know, they always execute in a similar way. It's sort of standard and they don't do a bad job, but it's nothing. It's never anything that exciting except for when the PETA protesters jumped on the stage this time. A lot of people are talking about the CA deal, which was announced that it's actually happening on Thursday, the first official day of Fashion Week. So it was interesting to see what CA clients are out at Fashion Week. Caring had a big dinner for this charity thing that they do on Tuesdays. So there were a lot of celebrities at that. Yeah, there was just a lot to talk about that had to do with deals. There were a lot of financiers in the crowd this year. Ari Emanuel's wife has this brand, Stodd, Sarah Stodinger, and he and his whole crew were there and they were all taking pictures and like it was it it was very funny i i was amused and had a great time yeah it's funny you mentioned the the presence of financiers in the crowd i was going to ask you about the hierarchy these days in terms of the seating charts and, and how they've evolved at these shows over time because i assumed that it's like half tiktok influencers now obviously these are a lot of brands in new york that are higher end i, I presumably targeting a slightly older richer demographic. But um, yeah, what, what was the breakdown like along the uh, the edge of the runway? There aren't as many magazine editors as there used to be. So there is room for more influencers. And I'd say I noticed it at the Proenza Schooler show, there was just a lot of different kinds of influencers. And that's that's a pretty tough show to get into. It's only one or two rows typically. And so that has evolved crazily. There's so many more. But the same thing at Carolina Herrera, which is a sort of typical ladies who lunch brand, you still see a lot of influencers there because there is also a convergence between socialites and influencers. So sometimes someone is a TikTok star, but they also live on Upper East Side. So you see a lot of that. And then fashion is traditionally not a target of investors who are, you know, in Silicon Valley or outside of consumer goods. And I think the last 10 years, you've really seen people sort of, they were interested in it in the 2000s when the industry started consolidating and then they backed away a little bit. 
And I think that because of the success of LVMH and caring, they're sort of picking up again. So it's it's really interesting to see tech wealth and Hollywood wealth and all these different things start to converge and people really take a big bet on fashion because they can see it can make you the second richest man in the world. Yeah. I mean, obviously, fashion has always attracted wealthy patrons. There's always been a ton of money sloshing around in the industry, especially after the wave of consolidation that you mentioned. But yeah, it's it makes sense that you see even more money pouring in from unexpected places like Silicon Valley. Now that, you know, when you go to look at the Bloomberg billionaires list, there's Bernard Arnault at the top, uh, you know, every other day as the wealthiest man in the world. You've got LVMH, which obviously is is one of the wealthiest companies in Europe, although now matched by the pharmaceutical company that makes Ozempic. You mentioned the other day that putting on a show in New York is just so expensive now that only a couple of brands can do it. And in fact, even successful brands, um, more serious brands like The Row, like Proenza, Altuzara, you said they're, they're now in Paris instead of New York, in part just because it's actually so much cheaper to show in Europe than it is here. Yeah. I mean, I think so Proenza and Altuzara have tried showing in Paris and they've ended up coming back and they showed here this season and have for a couple of seasons. The row, I think it's strategic because they are one of the few brands in the U.S. that could be categorized as luxury. There's a difference to me between a fashion brand and a luxury brand, and they sell leather goods and their stuff is made of certain materials. It could be considered luxury. So I think that it's for them a positioning thing. But if you look at a brand like Vaquera, which is like a young upstart, it's backed by people that own Dover Street Market. They showed in New York for years and just decided, you know what, fuck it. I'm not doing this anymore. It's crazy. One producer told gave me a stat, and I think it's like a very good example of why it's so nuts to show here. She said backstage chairs, so like the folding chairs for people to do makeup, that can be three to four thousand dollars just because you're you have to pay a truck. Whereas in Paris, that's, that's crazy. Bucks. Yeah. And so like these are two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars shows. Most people who have fashion brands have inherited wealth, or they're backed by their parents. That's nine times out of ten. But sometimes it's like the parent taking out a second mortgage. It's not always people who are super loaded with unlimited funds. And also, rich people didn't get rich by spending their money on fashion shows. All right. So, who was the big winner of the week? Was it um, was it Michael Kors with all this new money coming in behind him from Capri? Someone else that was exciting. And uh, and give us a fashion week miss too. Let's let's name and very respectfully shame some of the more disappointing shows. Yes, honestly, I would say the big win of the week was Kate, which will be controversial because she did get some bad reviews from some of my fashion critic colleagues. Um, but you know that show. This was the first time she had been she had shown since the investment from Stripes had been announced, and so. It's a big deal that Stripes invested in that brand. It's a luxury brand. They had invested in fashion before Stripes, the pri- the private equity and and VC firm. They had invested in fashion before, but in Reformation, which is you know not fast fashion, but it's more affordable, more mass. So it's a different market, a different exit strategy. They also are investors in Air One and A24. So I'm really interested in Stripes personally because a lot of investors, as you know, Ben. They don't really invest based on their own personal taste. They invest in whatever their pattern and their model is and whatever's going to get them the best exit. Whereas you can really tell that they are investing in things that they think are cultural pillars. And and so I'm really interested every time they 
they make a bet. She always has really good music. But I would say, I mean, what she is doing, and the designer's name is Catherine Holstein, is making clothes that rich women want to buy. And she knows she's a really good merchandiser. She designs like piece by piece. So I think some fashion editors are a little bit turned off because it can look a little derivative of other designers. And also it can be a bit just intense on the runway. But I really try to look at it as if I was a merchant and look at what each piece, like what value each piece is giving. And I also thought it overall looked really good. And I think she killed it and I'm sure it's going to sell really well. And honestly, that's what matters here in terms of who was disappointing. Oh man, there were, I mean, there were a few, I I'd say coach. I, I didn't pan it in my, I didn't do that much because I didn't write that much about the clothes, but I coach was fine and helmet laying another one. I don't want to say it was disappointing because I did not have high expectations, but helmet lane Lang is owned by Fast Retailing, which is the owner of Uniqlo. It's owned by a mass company and they've owned it, owned it for, I don't know, 15, over 15 years. We've never known what to do with it. I'm not going to get into here, into it here, but it's one of those brands that should just be left alone for a while. And they brought this really young, talented designer, Peter Doe, to come in and do it. And it's great because now he has a little funding for his own brand, et cetera. But it just didn't work and it'll be fine at retail, like the clothes themselves, the pieces, the, a blazer, a pair of jeans, but it, it just showed that it was, there's a lot of misalignments with who owns it, how they're managing it, what price point it is, all of that stuff and whether or not it should even be around right now. So that one was a little disappointing and there are a couple others. I do hate to point this one out because I am a generally big fan, but I did think that Joseph Baltazar's collection was a little too derivative. It just felt he has a very distinct point of view and it, it was clear he wanted to evolve that point of view and you have to do that. But I think it got a little too lost and it felt a little too Prada-y, which is, you know, every everybody knocks off Prada. So there's nothing wrong with that, but you've got to interpret it in your way. And I think I would have loved to see a little more of Joseph in that collection. And it is really hard for me to say that because I do love him and want his business to do well. But you know, everyone has misses. Well, Lauren, it was great having you in New York. I'm so glad you could swing by. Um, I was living vicariously through all of your reports from the parties and the runways. You're off to uh, to Milan next, right? Yes. You got to come to one next year. I will. If we can get one of those PR people to respond to my invitation, I'll go. Yes. I, you really need to go to Stad next year. I'm going to make up it if, if you're not if you're not in the front row with me. All right. If you're the PR person from Stad and you're, and you're listening, you've been put on notice. Lauren, thanks very much. I'll, uh, I'll see you later. Talk soon, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.